special episode of James Bond and Friends. James Bond is on assignment this week, so I'm your fill-in host from MI6 HQ and MI6 Confidential Magazine, Paul Atkinson. Our special mission debrief episodes take a deep dive into a special subject with an expert. And this week, I'm joined by Warren Ringham of Q the Music fame. Hello, Warren. How are you doing today? Hey, Paul. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Um, thank you for that intro. That's, that's quite all right. That's quite all right. We're here to talk a little bit about Bond music in general and your recent foray into full-time Bond music organizer, composer, and performer extraordinaire. Maybe not composer just yet, but, you know, we're working on it. <laughs> it's funny you should say that, actually. Uh, that is exactly uh, what's happening at the moment. I don't know when, how close we'll be when this comes out, but we've just been working on our own little uh, song for No Time to Die. So some point in the near future, we'll be putting something out. It's just for fun, really, but uh, it's my first foray into the world of composing, so it'll be interesting to see how it comes out. Absolutely. I think that's a that's a, a super project and not one that many can say that they can take on and perform or you know complete with a plum like you can. And I guess I imagine the challenge is not just arranging it for keys and a voice, but it's arranging it for a, a band the size of yours. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's coming up with a sound that is going to, I think, please Bond fans because I think ultimately, you know, Q the music's always been about performing the Bond music for Bond fans. And I've always get asked about, oh, you know, you should write your own stuff as well, which is not really something that I do or, or even that we do. It's all about performing the Bond music normally, but we thought we'd give it a go for this for this uh, upcoming film and, and have a crack at it. So it's been kind of putting all the years of experience of working within and working on the James Bond sound, you know, what makes a James Bond song. And, and that's been quite an interesting process to actually finally put into practice the theory which i know the theory of what is the james bond sound i've done enough of it now to know so n- now it's kind of putting it into practice which is a really interesting process and it'll be fun to see what people think i mean they might hate it but at the end of the day it's all for a bit of fun so no no um, i mean i'm sure it, yeah i'm sure everyone's going to have their own take and everyone's going to be oh they will that's that's the thing about bond music you know, there are people out there that love the the writings on the wall. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think it's a great song. I really, really love that song. No, no, I, I remember the last time we had you had you on the podcast. You sung its praises and you chose it to go on our uh, shaken I and did. stirred album yeah, remaster. I did yeah, yeah. Maybe you can tell us a little bit. We'll jump straight in, seeing as we we've touched on that subject already. Is maybe you can tell me a little bit more about some of the lessons you learned trying to compose a Bond esque song. You know, it's funny because as somebody that's, if I can dare say it, you know, someone that's kind of now reasonably known a little bit on social media and and within the. Bond community for obviously doing cue the music. And so I quite often get people sending me their Bond songs that they've composed. And I probably had a few dozen sent to me over the years. And so you kind of start to see some of the things that work and don't work. And one of those things that I always feel doesn't work is that when people kind of try to compose a James Bond song, they always go with sort of what I would describe as on the nose thoughts so one of the things that people always try to put into a bond song is the vamp from the james bond theme you know da, da, dee, da. they'll put it in there somewhere usually as part of the verse or as part of the chorus and it's just too um well it's just too on the nose i think and <laughs> so it's, it just ends up kind of being like an oh here we go again you know and then the question comes around what is the bond sound what is the what is the thread and it's funny because now that Billie Eilish has been announced as this uh, as the new uh, performer for the new song. 
Of course, social media is absolutely flooded with everyone trying to get their clickbait articles in about what is uh, the Bond sound, what makes a great Bond song. And there's some absolute dross and drivel written about it. It really is. You know, it's, it's, and it actually, when you read it, a lot of the time, there isn't really any substance to it. So for me, I think what what really makes the James Bond sound anyway is the Barry chords that he used, those kind of jazz influence minor hmm. nine chords. So um, so what he does is he takes fairly standard pop chords and he and he colors them in a in a sort of jazz way so it might be adding an extra note in so for the musical people it might be that the ninth or it could be the second or the sixth that he'll just add an extra note into what would be a standard chord and it just colors it in a way that gives it that really dark edgy mysterious spy sound it because it's a sound that comes it does come from Barry's jazz background. It's maybe not something that a lot of pop artists are used to working in that kind of that kind of jazz sound sphere. So I think a lot of the time when people write pop songs that are meant to be Bond songs, they struggle to find that sound because they're not used to working with those chords. So that's one of the first sort of main ingredients that, that when I was doing it anyway, I mean, and like I say, people might listen to it and not like it, but it, I mean, when you do hear our, our song, there's absolutely no doubt that it, that it does have a Bond flavour in it. I mean, it's, there's, it's just no getting away from it. And we filled it actually with a load of little Easter eggs as well, just little tiny little snippets of, of bits from the Daniel Craig era. If I was ever to get a dream gig of writing the song for the film but when we know that it's daniel craig's last film we know it's going to be the end of his story arc we, we know all of those things and is there a way to kind of show his arc of those five films in it so we we've kind of just had little throwbacks in there just tiny little snippets blinking you'll miss them snippets to the songs from the other films and, and that was that was really good fun to do but like i say all stuff that really couldn't be on the nose. I mean, you couldn't just suddenly stick in, uh, you know, da 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 da, because everyone would go, oh, it's just you know my name. I, I suppose it's a little bit the way that John Williams maybe would hide some of his little his little quotes within his Star Wars film stuff. Like that. You just get those little snippets where you go, oh, I, you know, is, was that was that that or was it? I'm not sure. So, I think that's the kind of way to go about that. I've kind of rattled on a little bit up there, um, but that that's kind of. It just that that's just kind of the starting point anyway of my approach to um trying to come up with a bond so bond song i guess barry's background in jazz is so important to that larger that larger picture and i guess you can't escape the fact that it's, it's all inspired by the people that worked on those first few films when i asked the question what is a bond sound madonna is not typically thought of as a bond sound but it's now entrenched in the franchise billy eilish probably was never thought of as a typical bonds candidate until somebody came along and said how about that how about that and it might be because mm. she's charting and doing really well and it might be a, you know as our colleague bill koenig says a typical kind of pr move that it's a marketing effort to try and get more people to come see the film if they like the music but you can introduce all sorts of styles and rhythms and kind well, of like genres of music into the into the into the film without you know some kind of sacrilege of <laughs> something or other do you agree or do you think that there's like this canonical kind of explanation you can't escape the fact that part of the bond sound in terms of the songs anyway is that incorporation of the modern 
artist, the modern sound of that time. That is that is fundamental to looking back throughout the nearly sixty years of of Bond music. That has always been the way it's been. It's it's you took it, take any song, you take Fury Eyes only. It's very much a snapshot of the eighty sound. Living Daylights, especially another one, View to a Kill, and then more recently, and uh, you know my name. Th- these are all very contemporary sounding tracks for the time. And Billy Eilish is definitely going to have an element of that. But I'm a huge fan. I, I mean, I I was aware of her stuff before the announcement. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I was aware aware of her, but I'd certainly heard a couple of her songs. And straight away, I went on YouTube. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard heard a couple of these. And of course, I delved um, quite deeply into her. her um, her story, a backstory, and I was watching some really, really interesting documentaries. And she, she is fantastic. I know I've read some really negative comments about about her and stuff, and there'll be people listening that are not convinced or perhaps really vocally against her. But you know, and sad people saying, "Oh, you know, she's rubbish, whatever." As someone that studied for four years at music college, got a degree in music and everything else. I sat and I watched her process for how she writes songs and how she performs everything else. That girl and her brother are blooming talented musicians. They really, really are. They know what they're doing. And you know, I said somebody else put a comment on there about, "Oh, you know, they just create. Anyone can create anything in their bedroom with with a music software program." I was like, "Well, actually." That's how all music is created now. I mean, they're not doing anything that nobody else is doing. They, you know, the software that they're using and the processes that they're using is what every single musician and band and artist out there are recording on. They're no different. There's one thing to sort of have access to the tools. It's another thing to know how to use the tools. And it's another thing to have the insight and talent and appreciation of music and itself to actually produce something good. So whilst it's become easier than ever for somebody to be a a garage success, there's no surefire path from being able to buy a copy of Logic to being able to produce a really good chart-topping hit. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I mean, the song that she did, Bad Guy, she was walking with her family down the road. I think it was in New Zealand, actually. I was in New Zealand, Australia. But the, you guys have got that that um, funny thing with the with the um, traffic light crossing the road, and it's got a funny ticking sound, hasn't it? Is that right? She, she said, anyway. It, it made this funny clicking sound, which we which she wasn't used to in, in her country, and I, we don't have it here. Ours just beeps. But she was so fascinated by the sound that it made that she got her phone out and she recorded it and then took it back. And they sampled that and used it in the chorus on Bad Guy. That's an artist working at a different level, isn't it? I mean, I think I, that I know that's not that's not this sort of kind of great musical creation that people want to think of when they think in terms of Bond. But what I'm saying is that that's someone whose brain is open to what's out there and what's what's happening in the world all the time, thinking, how can I bring this into my art? And I think that's something that's like next level to, to, to how I approach music and, 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 and taking it a little bit more around to a, a sort of a more um, classically sort of a harmonic musical appreciation, you know, what she does with her vocal harmonies. And if you listen to it, it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. It, I mean, the stuff that she does, musically with her songs i think is is really underrated i think by a lot of the comments i've seen and i'm really really open and willing to giving her a chance on this because i think they've got it in them to write a really great bond song it might not be the sort of bombastic sound of a of a goldfinger song 
but I think it's going to be a really great song all the same. And I think it's going to still, I think they will pay homage to the Bond sound. And I think they will work within that framework, but then bring their own sound and style to it as well. I mean, she does perform in a range of different styles. Her album is a whole range of different sounds on there. You know, it really does um, push the boundaries across the board. So I, I, for one, I'm really excited what what she's going to do. And I'm, really keeping my fingers crossed that it is great and i do think it will be you know it's good to get a the perspective of somebody who uh who does it for a living who can sort of appreciate some of the nuances of it that whereas maybe i hear a a, a pop song and go oh yes this is a pop song whereas you can see the <laughs> potential for it to be more than that i'm less as, as uh, like out and out positive about hans zimmer I think he, I, I, there's stuff of his that I think is great. And I think that he is more than capable of writing the kind of melodic and harmonic Bond sounding stuff that I know that the majority of Bond fans want us to return to. The, the fact is that he hasn't done that in more recent times. And I know that, that he, he, you know, does write a lot of kind of rhythmic and quite sort of moody kind of music. But I think that's just the way that the industry has gone. And I think he's tracked that because you can go back to some of his early stuff and he is capable of writing melody. It's just that the world has kind of changed and I think he's changed with it. Nobody's mm. writing melodies anymore. You know, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in popular music. It doesn't happen in classical music. Well, in, in film music anyway. You know, the theme tunes are not being written the, the way they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. So you either adapt and, and go with that or you get left behind. And I think he has adapted and gone with that. But it'd be interesting to see whether he he does try and incorporate the formula of Bond music, which is to take the theme tune and then incorporate that into the score because it, from what I've read, it does look like he has been working yes. with Billie Eilish. Well, she said, hasn't she? She said, I've enjoyed working with Hans Zimmer. So that can only be a good thing in terms of, of having that, that coordination between the song and the score, which I think if you took a poll, I think a vast majority of Bond fans want to see us go back to it. It's really been missing in, in recent films. And I think it also helps you have more of an appreciation from the song when you have it, interweaving into the film it kind of it kind of deepens your emotional connection with the song when you're kind of enjoying it within the film and and you kind of go through that journey within in the film especially if it's a good film um it makes your connection to the song stronger i think it's nice to have some you know a leitmotif that moves throughout the score even maybe if it's a second song you know we've <laughs> we were spoiled in the you know 70s and 80s where we had a, a b-side mm. to the bond theme that could also be integrated yeah. into the score now we seem to have or at least in the you know I don't know if you can call the Thomas Newman era an era, but in the Thomas Newman offering, we seem to be very resistant to integrating anything that wasn't it wasn't his into the score. Same with the, with the James Bond theme, right? Yeah. You know, David Arnold cleverly withheld it till yeah. the closing yeah, credits yeah. on Casino Royale, but that's kind of been done now. And I can understand that there's always yeah. such thing as too much of a good. How, how do you feel about? reintroducing now that i've uh, now that i've primed you for that how do you feel about maybe reintroducing the bond theme a little bit more into the no time to die score well i think the thing is you don't really you you don't have to go all out with it you can just incorporate snippets of it little hints of it even just a couple of notes is sometimes all it needs i mean don't get me wrong i'd love to see the bond theme used at some point in this film i think it i think it can't go back to where it was being used all the time but i think there 
then there, there will be a hero moment somewhere in this film where we can have a little blast of the theme in its in its all its glory. And I think that would be nice to to have that, especially if it is Daniel Craig's last film. I think we've if if it definitely definitely is, then we've got to have that. I think that somewhere we need that moment. I think that'll be a, I think that'll be a real punch the air moment if that happens. But you know, in the kind of wider context of the film. You, you know, you only need to just have maybe a couple of notes from the riff or a couple of notes from the vamp, and that that just gives it a flavor. I mean, I think that the one thing that Newman did really, really well, and I wasn't a huge uh, Newman fan, but I, but there are parts of the score that I do love, and I think that the opening scenes in Spectre, mm, um, mm. I think he used little hints of the Bond theme and the and the vibe of that was great. I mean, it was it was just brilliant when he was going along the rooftops and you had all those kind of that sort of almost sixties um, Barry sound a little bit, little bit going on there was it was just great. So I'd like to see some more of that. What about you? What about you? Are you are you, are you hoping for the return of that? And, and are you an are you a Newman fan? Or? I would have to say that I'm amongst some of the soundtracks that I listen to more frequently, they are the Thomas Newman ones. But I don't think oh, really? that in the context of the film they do a very good service. And I certainly think that Skyfall Part Two was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> yeah, that's the common that's the common criticism, isn't it? I think he was maybe a little bit sparing, and you got the sense that he was maybe a little bit above, you know, that kind of integration. And who knows? The Spectre score smacks of it being a quick and dirty kind of a job. There's the pre-title sequence being a the exception of like a few moments of brilliance amid something that was wholly more pedestrian. I find them yeah. more melodic than most and more pleasurable to listen to than perhaps the Brosnan era scores in terms right. of just I need sitting need to sit down and get some work done and I want to be carried away to another world. Newman actually does that reasonably effectively his action scores are not too bassy and do still have a bit of bit of melody to them i agree that we could potentially have more and i think you know something like david arnold's quantum of solace is kind of hitting hitting all of the right beats for a modern bond film yeah i think you know one of the things that newman gets a lot of hard time for inspector is that you know, I know you, you you jokingly called it Skyfall Part Two, but that's one of the criticisms, isn't it? And I I sometimes feel he, that actually I think what he was trying to do with that kind of gets lost a little bit. And I think that that in his way was the kind of the light motif thing. And I mean, for example, the reuse of uh, voluntary retirement as one. I think when he used that, he kind of used it as M's light motif. And when M comes back in the video in Spectre. That's that I'm pretty sure he uses the cue there, doesn't he? And I think he what he's trying to do with that is use it as like her light motif. But actually, because it's literally feels like it's just been lifted out of um, Skyfall and dropped in Spectre as even it might even be well, it might even be the same take. I'm not sure, but it is literally note for note beat for beat the same. It just feels like it was just recycled and. I feel what he was trying to do there, I believe anyway, I think that it kind of gets a bit lost for him. And and as much as I'm not a huge fan of his two scores, there are good bits in it. I, overall, like for me, two of the weaker scores in the series, which is funny because that's opposite to you. But um, I, I think that's something that he gets criticised for a little bit unfairly. Well, actually. you know, to clarify a little bit, I think that there's a difference between wanting to sit and listen to it and wanting it to accompany the film. And right. didn't think much of the scores when I listened to them and when I watched the film. But yeah. subsequently listening to them, I found them to be the right style of music for 
the purpose that they serve. I use a lot of film scores and that kind of ambient classical style music as concentration music. And so it's, I guess I'm very being very utilitarian about it when I say I like it. I like it for the purpose that it serves for me. I could well imagine actually those two scores working really well in that scenario because you, you're right. I mean, David Arnold ones are, are, are a lot more frantic, especially in the in the action sequences although i i personally really like that but uh, i would i think i'd find it quite hard to uh to sit and actually write an essay whilst white knight was going on or something But I could imagine, you know, the Spectre and, and Skyfall scores being a little bit more keep, you know, able to keep your focus uh, with them for sure. Yeah, they're aids to something as opposed to sort of like the, you know, the domination of, <laughs> of, of all of your thought patterns or something like this. I flagged Quantum of Solace, which does have some frantic stuff in it, but it also has some really beautiful slower pieces that do accompany action and show that he can compose that kind oh, of yeah. style as well you know even i can't remember the name of the cube at the boat chase quantumosolus boat chase it really like takes you on a ride it starts slow yeah. and ends slow but there's some frantic in the middle and that is one of the ones that still is still is on my playlist for that reason is that it's like a particular kind of a journey yeah sorry i saw um skyfall live I've seen both Casino Royale live and and Skyfall live, and I, as I'm not a huge fan of those scores, I really went to see Skyfall with with an open mind. I thought I'm going to go in there clean slate, not with no preconceptions. I'm just going to go in and I'm going to listen to it as a concert, especially as, as the music's live. It's always something different about seeing the orchestra playing it live, mm. and I actually came away feeling it was weaker than when I went in, which was interesting. I I I, I, I can't get this across enough that I really wanted to like it. Like I went wanting to come away, seeing what so many people, well, not so many people, but the number of the, the Newman fans, you know, saw in it. And it's actually interesting because a number of the fans that I spoke to who are big uh, Newman supporters actually came away saying a similar thing that they didn't feel that the music worked as well live as it did in in the film. So interesting. The only time I've been to a play along, a sing along, <laughs> a um, a play along <laughs> with a film was the Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars: The New Hope, and I found it horrifically distracting having the film on. I don't know if you had that experience yeah. as well as like I went to see New Zealand's premier orchestra play along with Star Wars, and it was kind of annoying having the film on in the background. Yeah, I I found it two very different experiences. With so what happened when I went to see Casino Royale? I saw it in Manchester, and I started off up the top where the balance was probably a bit more 50-50 of the film and the orchestra. But then at halftime, I had a friend who was sat right next to the, right in front of the orchestra and he said to me, oh, look, there's a spare seat next to me. Why don't you come down here? So second half, I went down there and you could hear way more of the orchestra than you could of the film. And I really enjoyed that a lot more. And I found the balance there really great because I was getting more of the, the music than the film, but the film was kind of still there to kind of just kind of keep me on point with where I was. And I found myself drawn to the music Music and and the film was really just kind of background. Whereas with Skyfall, I actually found that flipped. I found myself, um, I had to actually had to force myself to look at the orchestra and listen to the orchestra because I found the music so not that not that interesting. You know, it was not compelling enough. No, well, the thing is with Newman, and I saw him say this in an interview once that his approach to writing film music was that it was. It should only be there in the moment. It's not something that should, when you when you 
when that moment has passed, the music should be in the past kind of thing, you know? Whereas I think that kind of misses the whole point of Bond for me, Bond scores for me, because with Bond scores of the past, they've always been full of these little melodies and light motifs and stuff that you would go out humming as you sort of went home throughout so many, well, all the Barry ones and and actually the Arnold ones as well. And, and yeah, I think that kind of was highlighted at, at that point because actually I just found myself watching the film and, and really I'd paid and gone especially out to see it to really see the music being performed live and you can put the film on at home anytime. But I actually just, I found myself having to force myself to take my attention away from the film and just absorb the orchestra at times. Whereas that was the opposite with Casino Royale. My attention was really pulled in by the performance of the orchestra and the, and the themes. And I mean, the fantastic Venice music, um, which I think some of the most beautiful music in, in the, in the whole series, that, that whole, um, period at the, at the end of the film. So it was two very, very different experiences for me anyway. Oh, well, it's good to get your take on those things. You have sung the praises of Casino Royale, but to, to swivel back and to sort of round out the section on talking a little bit generally about the, the music of Bond, can you tell us about some of your other Bond music highlights from the series? What do you think are really noteworthy oh. scores or noteworthy even cues that people might remember and look up again? I've become, over the past 12 months, I've become such a big fan of the Honor Majesty's Secret Service score. And it's funny because when I came into the into this kind of Bond community world, which was probably five years ago, um, I sort of became aware that there's this whole community of people that were as obsessed about the Bond and music and and more obsessed than, than even I was. I, I'd never really been a huge fan of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I'd never really got it. And then started to find that actually it's such a cult favorite amongst the fans. And I kind of started to, not one I'd really watched that many times, but when I started watching it in the context of, of other people that were so full of its praises, it started to grow in me a lot. And that same thing happened with the score. And then last year with the 50th anniversary event in, in Piers Gloria, Cue the Music, my band played at this event. And, and I arranged a 20 minute medley from the cues from the film and listening to it on sort of multiple repetition of, of trying to get it down i just became so more and more hooked on this score and it's i think it's probably my favorite score of the series now and there's just so many fabulous cues in there there's a couple that i'm that i'm not so keen on i'm the whole kind of you know all that kind of violin mm -hmm. the the bobsleigh chase and these i i feel that's a little bit dated or it hasn't it hasn't aged as well as the rest of the score but the rest of the score is just absolutely fantastic. The the sounds that he uses, the orchestration, the themes, the harmonies, just just absolutely brilliant. I'm also a big fan of Moonraker, The Living Daylights. I love. I'm, I'm I've always been a big fan of Goldfinger. Uh, I know it's one of the smaller scores of the of the series, but and the other one that's that's a huge, huge favourite of mine is Thunderball. I absolutely adore the music to Thunderball. I think that's that's one of his one of his best scores in in my opinion. I mean it's it's probably one of the biggest scores in terms of the size of the orchestra. It's it's like it's almost like a, a full on symphony that he wrote for that. Yeah, no, well, I think of all of the ones you've mentioned so far, 
I I have a particular fondness for Moonraker, and but I found the Living Daylights whilst there's some amazing little like motifs and cues in there that the score is itself fairly repetitive. No, it it hundred percent is. I would you know what I was gonna say that when I mentioned it. I mean, there's the same <laughs> with a view to a kill. There are cues in there that that they've they've put on there, and I mean, literally, it's the same track and they've just renamed it. I mean, I think is he's dangerous and as uh, it's snow job at the start. The, you know, the, there's 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 a lot of those cues that get re- um, repeated. Wine with Stacy and Bond meet Stacy. I mean, it's basically the same. Um, Wine, Stacy. What what more could he want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure many of the fans would get through an evening with Stacy talking much, but <laughs> she certainly is no no sight for sore eyes. Anyway, I won't tell anyone you said that. <laughs> but yes, I think Thunderball is one that I will have to revisit based on your recommendation. One of the things that I love to point out with Thunderball is how clever Barry orchestrates in there to make the sound of under water for an example growing up when i used to listen to it there was one there's one bit in there where it's sort of a sequence when they're underwater and there's a piano that goes do you know the bit i mean from memory well hopefully somebody out there will recognize it from my appallingly sung version of it um, that's the first bit that you've harmed that i have not actually recognized yet but by the time this is edited and, together people will be hearing it and it when i when i heard it in the context of the film for for you know multiple times in my sort of i guess mid childhood when i was listening to it and i i used to think wow it's really clever they've got a they've got a piano and they've put some sort of echo effect on it to make it sound like it's 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 like almost like a um a whale call or a, or a mosque or a, a sound wave that's kind of dis- dissipating over time and it wasn't until I got the soundtrack um, at, at some point. I had it. I bought it myself, and I listened to it. And I and you hear it in isolation without all the other things going on on screen. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, that is just a piano player that's playing it on one key on the piano. That he's playing from from loud to soft on each on each strike of the note. It gets progressively soft to make it sound like each one's an echo of the previous note." And I thought that is the genius of John Barry that he is using the instruments like he uses the vibraphone and the shimmering on the vibraphone to create that kind of underwater um, feeling. And I thought, you know, this is this is the genius of this guy that he can just take an orchestra and give it a sound that that really no other composer can or has done, and creates these atmospheres like space in Moonraker and trains in from russia with love and stuff you know he he creates something that nobody else does so that's one of the things that that or that really hooked me into the thunderball soundtrack was that that first kind of realization that actually it wasn't done with effects in a studio this was done with an orchestra and and just the genius of of composition and orchestration and it goes from the biggest and the boldest and the largest orchestra down to the, the the one piano that's just using what is it's particularly distinctive about a piano is the fact that you when you hit the key hard it makes a loud noise and when you hit the key soft it makes a soft noise right like that's yeah, what yeah. makes a pianoforte a pianoforte and he's used just that one instrument just that one subtle way to produce this kind of effect that is perfect for the film i guess De- yeah absolutely definitely and and that's that's his genius that he he repeats over and over throughout the uh throughout the scores that he did the 11 scores he did and it's also good genius. to acknowledge those little the micro stuff as well as the ensemble kind of work that happens in his scores i guess that's what he's most known for as those big brassy bold jazz inspired scores but then it comes down to like it can it can get as as fine grained and as subtle and as atmospheric as something like in Thunderball. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
probably now time to, to change tact and talk a little bit about your experience and your history and where, where Q the Music is going from here. So I want to flash back a few years ago. You started the band in 2004. Yeah. But how has music and Bond sort of interacted in your life up until 2004 and sort of what's the origin story for the for the band itself? Well, for, for me personally, going, going back, um, I've always been influenced by film music and Probably, probably more of John Williams in my younger days, and then John Barry later on. I grew up in a sort of very musical family, and my father was a trumpet player, professional trumpet player, played on multiple soundtracks, and actually worked with John Barry um, at least, uh, definitely at least on one occasion. I mean, he's unfortunately. Uh, no longer with us and hasn't been for for 20 years now but he recorded an album called Moviola a couple of albums in fact there was two Moviola with John Barry he's quite a well-known I remember yeah yeah and he was principal trumpet on that and there's a couple of really fantastic trumpet solos on that album that's my dad which I'm just so proud of I I guess the only real regret for me is that growing up I was kind of born into this world where my dad was this really well-known, well-respected trumpet player in the industry. Um, I mean, when he died, he had obituaries in the national newspapers and stuff like that. So um, for the first 19 years of my life, that was kind of the norm to me. And that's not to say that I was in any way cocky about it or arrogant about having a dad like that it's just you don't know any different. I guess it would be the same with a child that's born to a, you know, you know, a huge celebrity or whatever, and they they just grow they just grow up not knowing any different. I mean, I can remember one morning before school, I was sat eating my breakfast and the TV was on, and my dad didn't live at home. I split with my parents, but I was sat and my dad was on TV in a rerun of a concert with Pavarotti. And every time Pavarotti was on screen, taking up one third of the screen on the other side of the screen, just out of focus, but quite clearly probably a third, the other third of the screen was my dad on the TV. And I'm sat there at breakfast going, oh, it's dad on TV. And it was just the norm for me. I kind of didn't really appreciate what I had at my disposal, but you know, what I was involved, I used to regularly go along to sessions with my dad and rehearsals when he was rehearsing with the London Symphony Orchestra, BBC Symphony Orchestra, Royal Funnel, whatever. And you know, we just sit and I would play with my toys outside while I was waiting for him to finish rehearsal and stuff. And we, I used to go to these recording sessions with him and I couldn't tell you which ones I went to, but I could have easily have gone to the John Barry one and met John Barry. And if I'd have known that I was going to be this massive Barry fan in 10 years down the line, wish I'd taken that opportunity to milk those moments and, and meet him and, and see him work. But, you know, when you're a child, you're just kind of not aware of that. That was kind of my, my surrounding from an early age. And then when I was nine, I started playing the trumpet and pretty much the first um, couple of weeks after I I picked up a trumpet for the first time. I made quite rapid progress and went straight into a band, into a local wind band that was playing theme tunes from TVs and, and films and what have you. That was kind of got me hooked and, and, and my love in music straight away was being able to play the music that I was watching on TV. And that was such a great era, the 80s, of, of really fabulous theme tunes on TV and, and film music that was coming with Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Superman, E.T., you know, 
every single film that came out had this fantastic theme and, and I was getting to play them in these uh, youth bands and stuff like that. So, so it was kind of lucky your dad was a trumpeter because, I mean, obviously you probably took the lead to learn the trumpet from him. Oh, definitely, yeah. The trumpet is so quintessentially Barry. <laughs> well, it is. And, and the great thing about the trumpet is it nearly always gets the tune. You know, especially in those in those Barry and and, and Williams scores, you know, you, you you know that you're at some point you're gonna get to absolutely razz the tune out, which is just there's nothing better if you're playing an orchestra and I mean I've done in later life I've done some really, really fantastic performances of E. T. and and, and stuff at scores that I'd not really got to play in um, until later on like ET I didn't get to play that until I was in mid 30s and I mean the goosebumps and the the just the sheer joy and ecstasy of playing that music is a buzz that you can't just you can't describe I mean I guess it must be like uh, you know like a footballer scoring a goal or I don't know but that kind of that kind of it's like a drug when you get to perform that music for me that that kind of feeling was there from a really really young age and kind of moving things along a little bit i kind of really got i really always was a bond fan but i kind of really got into bond in my teens and then the music started really becoming something that was part of my life when I was at music college. I was studying at the Royal College of Music in London, and they had a Best of Bond CD that was just on continuous play in the bar. <laughs> one day I, I, bought, I bought the CD, and I was one day I sat in traffic with this CD on, and it just suddenly had dawned on me. like Nobody has ever done a tribute band to the music of Bond. There was tributes to everything under the sun at the time, and, and even more so now, but you know, Elvis tribute and and all kinds of things, but nobody ever done a tribute to Bond. And I quickly realized the reason for that was probably because it's really quite difficult to pull off successfully. But I was sort of determined that I would that I was gonna do it. And and I I felt that with my passion for Bond and for the music and also my absolute belligerence um to get the detail right, I was just I was convinced that I could make it work. And fast forward uh 15 years um i th- i'd like to think that we've kind of got some way to um to doing that or certainly that seems to be the the general opinion of people that have seen the show so <laughs> you've certainly got recognition yeah. there's not going to be any competitors coming in anytime soon to, to swoop your title i don't think because it's a hard hard thing to organize and i know you work a lot of hours to to make it happen you've got to love what you're doing with this one because the bond fans are so particular and i know because i'm one of them but you know you you don't want to go and see a bond concert and the detail not be there there's nothing worse than seeing these songs not performed right and nobody likes a bad tribute act right (laughs) well yeah exactly and and and, but i think that's the thing with with a tribute act for any other artist you know it's probably going to be the look or the clothes or the sound of the voice that is um something that's going to put people off but with bond it's actually the orchestration and the arrangements and the sound of the songs i think that is what they would be most critical of and I think when I've seen other Bond concerts doing it, I, I think it's a lot of the time they th- they think, oh, you know, it's just a it's it's a quick buck, you know, we'll play a few Bond songs, and everyone will be happy. But in reality, I don't think it it works that way because I think that people have a very particular attachment to the sound of Bond, and if you haven't got that right, you're not going to win the crowd. And I think that's something that I've spent absolutely years and years getting right. I've re I've redrafted the 
the, the music from my songs probably about six or seven times because I'm still picking up tiny little bits of detail that I think, oh, yeah, I need to get that in there. That needs to happen. And, you know, I won't let the, the guys in the band, I won't get them, let them get away with anything that's not, that's not absolutely faithful to the original. There's no room for people to kind of uh, go off script, as it were. It's got to be, the detail's got to be 100% right. Is that at the same time as honouring the composer and honouring the, the fans somewhat limiting in a sense? Have you ever wanted to sort of like, have you ever listened to a song and gone, ah, I know what I could do to this to just put it on a different kind of plane? Not to necessarily, I'm not going to imply that you think you can make the work better, but just that you've got your own take on it, that you're still committed to that faithful reproduction at this point. Do you think you ever might like to experiment? Just such a great question because, I mean, I say that, but there are songs that we, we do do a little bit in our own way. I mean, for example, we do a female version of Writings on the Wall to an absolute 100% man when the, and woman, child, everything. When they come and see the show, everybody says we prefer it as a female song. And, and by the way, I'm not a Sam Smith, you know, hater or anything like that. I, th- I love the song. I think he's an amazing artist. It's just that for us, I think we initially when we heard it, we were like, this would work better for Kerry than it would for our male singer. It's worked out that way. And there are other songs that we do kind of put a little bit of a different, I wouldn't say the twist isn't so much that it's a different take on it, but it's just a different energy to it. So things like Another Way to Die and The Man with a Golden Gun, License to Kill, they, they all have a different vibe when they're played live and by real musicians. Because take, for example, uh, The Living Daylights and A View to a Kill, those are songs that have programmed um, elements to them in the originals but we play them with real live people in the show so you just get a different energy from that i've never really thought about doing um like a a, a different like a, a reimagining of the songs like a like a shaken not stirred david arnold version or whatever that's just not something that i that i've got any interest in in doing really not that it's an amazing album I'm not saying anything like that but i'm just saying that's just not our our mission, really, our mission is to kind of do live versions of uh, of, as authentic as they can be of the original and and just give it a kind of real live energy and enthusiasm and passion just takes it to to another level. And I think when people are there, they're in the room, that's the thing that they really get from the band is the is the flair and the passion and the enthusiasm. Mm. No, well, good on you for like for sort of working out what your what your niche is and, and how you can please and how you can get excited. To that point, the number of people that are uh, performing and cue the music, you know, whenever you get get the gigs and when you organise the gigs, are they all Bond fans too, or are they roped in from different parts of your world as a professional trumpeter? What's the story behind some of the other band members? Uh, there's a bit of a mixture. Um, some of them are are big Bond fans. I mean, it's funny actually because like my. My sound engineer, my chief sound engineer, she's when she first joined, she wasn't really a Bond. I wouldn't say she was really a Bond anorak or a Bond fan or whatever, but she's an absolutely incredible sound engineer. But I, the thing that I always had to sort of try and get across to her, for example, is look, if you're going to come and work with our show, you've got to know the songs, you've got to know all those little bits that have got to come out. That's just, it's just so, so important to get those elements. But she's a fantastic sound engineer. And I said, look, if you're going to mix our band, you need to know these songs inside out. You need to know the scores. You need to know the little details so that you can bring them out in the mix. You know, it might just be a little, a little sound effect here or a piano note there or whatever. Then you need to know which bits come out. I was just randomly now, she'll just suddenly come out with this little Bond nugget that I think, 
oh my goodness, you've been watching the films if you know that. Like there was something about um, Under the Mango Tree. And she went, oh yeah, that's the bit when they're on the beach in Doctor No. And I'm like, oh, okay. So you've been watching a few Bond films then. And she sort of has a chuckle. And I think, well, hey, what can I say? I'm creating more Bond fans here with this with this band. So <laughs> um, it's a bit of a mixture of both. But generally musicians come from from all over um, the country. It's a real mixed bag of locations. And, you know, we've got some fabulous, talented players. I, I have brass players in from the West End. I have my, my one of my main guitarists has just been doing a, a world tour with Joss Stone. My, my main keyboard player is constantly on tour with Susie Quattro. My drummer it goes off and does stuff in in the Maldives with events, private events for David Beckham. And he's done stuff with guys who take that, you know, it's, it's a real mix. So it's, it's great when we all kind of get together and I've got quite a, a decent sized pool of musicians. The one person that's always, or the two people, in fact, that are always there is myself and the lead vocalist, Kerry. She's never, ever missed a show in 15 years. And, and it's the marriage of the, the two things really her incredible vocal talents and my belligerence and and attention for detail that kind of i think what really kind of pins cue the music together is it, it are those two things really you're a musician first and a professional first and then a bond fan second and i think in your case the attention to detail would would come naturally if you liked the subject matter you know maybe the natural flair and the the ability to do it night after night is something that a musician kind of develops over yeah, the course of the, their career, the, right? Same with an actor or something like this, who that constant repetition and making it look fresh absolutely every time. Yeah, the, it's an interesting point, actually, because there's two parts to that. One, the keeping it fresh every night. Actually, I find that it, and easy because I love the music. I love seeing the reaction of people that, that love the music and the fact that I know they love what we're doing and the feedback we get. That makes it amazing every single night. And I, I've never got even bored of it for a second then i can't see that happening certainly in time in the near future maybe one day i don't know who knows but at the moment that's not a problem but the other side to the first part of your question was a is a really great point actually is the it's the kind of flipping off it's turning off the fan side and actually turning the the professional and the musician side on because there is definitely definitely been numerous occasions throughout the journey of cue the music where i've been in a real fan orgy kind of moment you know for example on a majesty secret service 50th anniversary last year with george lazenby at piers gloria and we were playing there and then on a, in a kind of opposite emotional kind of feeling was this sir roger moore memorial event that we did we played at Pima studios at his official memorial service event and on both of those occasions in particular the fan in me the james bond lifelong fan was just ready to burst with excitement and emotion and just pinch myself I'm dreaming kind of thing but then you've also got to then be a professional and perform and and deliver what people have in some cases paid or in some cases like the Roger Moore they just expect you to deliver that and so you kind of have to then you have to really turn on all the experience and professionalism and and dealing with those kinds of of um pressurized environment and that's where that has to kind of take over in the fan side you have to i have to really kind of sort of put a lid on that and and there's a there's a like a cracking example of the two kind of things competing was we did this 20 minute medley i said of the majesty's cues at piss gloria and it was the 
probably the hardest thing that we've ever done at 10,000 feet and everything else. The pressure of doing that was really, really high and we absolutely smashed it. It was such a brilliant performance. Everybody played out of their skin and the whole 20 minute medley finished with me doing a little trumpet solo at the end of the queue from Gumbolt Safe. I had to kind of, at the end of everyone had played such a blinder and I had to kind of play this like last really, really delicate, pearly little solo that was could have easily gone south. Mm-hmm. And I and I, the thought went through my mind just as it came up and I thought, if I ruin this, if I splatter this all over the wall, I'm going to ruin 20 minutes of music and I've got all these Bond fans in front of me that's going to ruin that moment. And you could easily be kind of taken into that that kind of whole, the occasion of what it meant to Bond fans, what it meant to me as a Bond fan. I could have got absorbed in that, but I was very quickly, I was like, okay, focus here. Think about drawing your years experience and just put all that to your mind and just, you know, and just play your instrument. And then I got to the end of that phrase and the whole room just erupted in like a fit of ecstasy of the end of this piece. And then that moment kind of took me because I was finished. I played what I needed to play. So I was able to then release that emotion I've given you a really long-winded answer again there, but it was funny you asked that because that that really highlighted those two kind of sides, the professional side and the fan side and how those two kind of interact and how I have to actually turn one on and the other off at certain times. No, I appreciate the answer. It was thoughtful and fulfilling to hear <laughs> such a good answer to such a ill-thought-out <laughs> question. So thank you. Speaking not as a musician, but as an audience member, it's the medley is amazing because you get to see how the music ties together and you you appreciate the artistry of the arrangement. Everything has to flow together nicely. As a From the other perspective, it's like, yes, if... If it had gone average or if it had gone badly, Lord, for, Lord forbid, if you know everyone hadn't been on their game that day, then that's a 20-minute piece without a break that lends you feeling flat. Whereas if you perform one of the themes quickly from one of the films, it's like a yeah. two- or three-minute song. You can kind of breathe out and go, oh, well, that was not our best work, but we're about to move on to something that's amazing. So you're delivering on a, an amazing promise of this beautiful 20 minute medley, oh, yeah. but it's got to be a hard thing to Yeah. And to we, start. we'd, we'd not, we'd, the only time we'd had to rehearse it was in the afternoon up when we got up to Piz Glory and we got halfway through it. And, um, George Lazenby and, and, and the other cast and crew that were there, John Glenn and a few other people that were there, they came up and, and they were doing press interviews and they came in and said, sorry, you're going to have to stop playing. And we're like, well, we've got to play this 20 minute piece tonight and we haven't even played it through yet. So we ended up kind of playing it at whisper quiet volume. If you imagine trying to rehearse for a film script with a with a reading and everyone's just whispering it in a room, it, it's that kind of thing. It's not really productive, but it, it at least... We it's not really of, a rehearsal, no, is it? <laughs> but we kind of were able to put down the markers at least. And then, I mean, I'm lucky. I, I'm so... I've put together s- such a great bunch of guys, you know, fantastic musicians. And it just seems that the more pressure I put them under, they just seem to raise their game. And and that particular event, that 10,000 feet, although it's, you know, in terms of climbing everything else, it's not necessarily ridiculous heights, but we were all feeling, or the vast majority of the band were feeling quite under the weather from those, from the altitude. And actually there were people, a lot of people in the audience as well, kind of do a, a physical thing of playing the drums or playing a lead trumpet or singing a song or whatever with that lack of oxygen, it, it does take it out of you. So having that extra uh, dynamic to the performance made it even harder. So I was really, really proud. You've released a recording of that, right? And your Patreon people can uh, can currently download that. Am I am I telling lies? 
no, you're right. If if people that join it, we we've got we kind of got a Patreon scheme for the US members or a fan club for the UK members. But it's the same thing. It's a subscription thing which starts from four dollars a month, and uh, that for that they get a new track every month. They get a commentary of me explaining how we uh, record the piece, how we get the sound that we do. They get isolated audio on some of the tiers as well, so they can see each member of the band, what they're doing. And, you know, you can really hear how we kind of construct these performances. And we decided to kind of go that way is days of CDs actually being worthwhile are just long gone. Um, but yeah, if people want to go and check it out, it's cuethemusicshow.com forward slash support. I, don't, I can't remember if I listened to the whole thing or if I've listened to extracts of what you sent me and shared with me in advance of the recording, but it is genuinely staggering how close and how much of a tribute you say you know you are doing to the to the original work you can't fault it for it for its commitment to originality so well done oh thanks thank you i mean it's we we've played we played concerts and we play private events where you might have 100 people 200 people 300 people whatever 500 people in the room who are there to come along they've had a night out you know they're they're kind of you know they're they're, they're bond fans but they're not like hardcore bond fans and they sort of you know, the clap and show their appreciation. But I tell you, I'd take one diehard Bond fan like you over 500 people that are just there for for a night out. I'd take that all day long because, you know, it, it means so much to get the appreciation of someone that really understands what we're trying to do and, and really appreciates it uh, that much more. I guess I never appreciated how much effort goes into making it sound as close as possible to what was scored by a large professional orchestra in a big environment, you know, in a big controlled environment that you were able to pull off in a, on the mountaintop, right? Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it, it, it just years and years have, has gone into it, but it's it's a love for Bond that's shared with with you, with the fans. You know, I am I am a fan, and I've always said it. It is created by fans for fans. What are the hardest or the most rewarding things that you do off stage for the band? What are the like key responsibilities that you have had to adjust to, perhaps because you're a trumpet player and usually not a band manager, right? Yeah. The hardest thing is time management. It's such a time-consuming thing, uh, running a theatre show, and I do I do everything. I do the website, I do the marketing, uh, I do a lot of the poster work, I do all the audio mixing, the video editing, um, I do the arrangements, obviously. I make sure all the band have all the details. It's one of the biggest bands on the kind of theatre circuit, a 13 plus a compare plus all the tech crew. I run and I own all the um, all the sound equipment as well, so I help with the setup and the pack-down of that. So it's a it's a massive job. It really is. And then you've got all the kind of business side of it, accounting and insurances and contracts, booking shows and all that sort of thing. So yeah, time management is the toughest part off the stage for me, definitely. Um, and that, and that's something that I'm always struggling to overcome without actually just not having sleep. <laughs> you can only do that for so long, right? Yeah, and you can only do that. In, in the in the prime of your life so i hope it gets easier and i'm sure it will as you find the skill and as hopefully people come out of the woodwork to help you with specific things the 
reaction you get when you describe for people what you do for a living? It's a funny one because there's there's kind of two kind of categories, I guess. There's because I'm assuming that I'm describing to people that don't know what I do. So then there's two types of people. There's people that are Bond that aren't Bond fans that just really like, oh, really? And then there's people that are Bond fans but haven't heard of us and there's this kind of real level of scrutiny, not scrutiny, but just don't believe that that we can be any good. You know, oh yeah, here we go. It's a band that plays bomb music, or whatever. And then you kind of go into this sort of defensive sales tactic where you're kind of like, no, you really, you know, you really need to check us out. I promise you, it's it's you know, it's not just um, it's not oh, just um, <laughs> yeah, you know, because that's the trouble when you when you say that you're in a band, it has such a it's such a different connotation depending on what context that you mean it in because anybody Everyone's can... Everyone's in a band. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's the kind of stereotype and the kind of preconceived ideas that we ha- that I've had to overcome so much over the years. It's been a, a really, really long, hard struggle at times for 15 years. I mean, you know, the, the last four years have been an absolute whirlwind and of phenomenal events and success and and doing things that were beyond my wildest dreams but the first 11 years was honestly it was brutal at times to try and get get people to get behind what we're doing and understand that that it was so much more than just a band the other sort of funny question i thought to ask you that has just come home to roost because you said earlier in the podcast that you possibly even had the opportunity to meet barry and that your dad bless him got to work with barry as an adult, as an adult, Warren, what would you ask Barry today if you got to meet John on the street or have 15 minutes of his time? Huh. I think I, I'd i probably just go – I'd probably uh, – do you know what? I was lucky enough to have the same thing happen, but in real, it actually happened, was I actually got to meet David Arnold and spend an afternoon with him. Yeah. So I think I'd be with John Barry the way I was with David Arnold, which is just like an excited school child <laughs> that just just – had all these questions and I just literally just fired them out one after the other and then tried to absorb what he was saying. And I mean, I even came out and started writing some of it down somewhere or rather I've got, I've got written down some of the answer gave me because I wanted to kind of go back over it and just like absorb it. And I think that's how I'd be with Barry. I, I don't think I'd have any one sort of thing. I think I would just, I want to ask him so many questions about cues and you know, how he his process of writing and, um, talk to him about his harmonic use and and his thematic ideas and and how he crafts melody. There would be just so many questions that I would ask him. Um, he would probably just end up slapping me around the face and walking out. I think. <laughs> at least you're honest. At least yeah, you're. Or I'd be like Terry Bamba, who who's a massive like John Barry fan, and he got to he got to deliver a, um, a script to John Barry's house once, and uh, and John Barry opened the door, and he'd waited all his life to meet this man who's a huge fan, and he just he just sort of oh, no, 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 there's there's a script, and and just sort of turned and, and ran away because he just didn't know what to say, and I, that's probably uh, what I'd be like in reality. Something like I don't meet your heroes, <laughs> not because they're always disappointing, but because you sometimes disappoint them. <laughs> I've not heard that one before. That's true. Oh, well, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Have you uh, have you is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think we must absolutely say? 
Oh, no, I think I've talked far too much. I'm sorry, but um, I've really enjoyed being here. And, and uh, it's a real privilege to to come and, and chat on James Bond and Friends and, and be involved with MI6. Fantastic. So thank you so, so, so much for having me on and, and for supporting Cue the Music the way you have today. It's, no problem. It's really we, uh, we appreciate your insights. Or I appreciate your insights. And I'm sure the listeners eventually will get to appreciate them as well. Yeah, no, thank you for being with us. And the last, the last, last, last question I promise is what should we play out on this afternoon? I tell you what, should we give them a snippet from the uh, Majesty's Medley as we've talked about it quite a bit? Mm-hmm. 